morning. Open with me, will you please, to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. We'll be reading the, the final passage of this book. How many like a good ending to a story? Well, what we have here is not necessarily a good ending to the story, but what secures a good ending to the story. Luke chapter 24, we'll be reading in verse 36, or starting there. And while, and while they were telling these things, remember the context of our passage is the disciples on the road to Emmaus came back to Jerusalem. Of course, they had to share the good news that Jesus was indeed risen from the dead. And they reported Simon must have seen him. Simon had seen him, and they had seen him. And he was recognized by them in the breaking of bread. He himself stood in their midst while they were doing that. Wow, he just appeared. The Lord Jesus Christ resurrected. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. It might be a little hard to believe if somebody that had died was all of a sudden standing in front of you. You'd probably question what you were seeing. Have you ever questioned what you were seeing? I have. I have. I can remember in a warehouse where I looked down this aisle and... There was four tiers high of pallets of toothpaste stacked up against the wall, anchored to the concrete wall. And I heard a sound and I looked and I thought I saw a forklift heading down the other direction. Next thing I saw, four tiers high, 20 pallets of toothpaste just crumble off the wall. I'll, I'll end up with a pile of oozing mess. The problem is that the Colgate Palmolive people were coming to do an inventory that weekend. <laughs> so, But they asked, did anybody see anything? And I'm thinking... It was an end of a quarter that had an end, no exit to it at all. I'm thinking, I must have seen something that wasn't there because there's no possible way it could happen. He couldn't get out past a pile of toothpaste, and he wasn't there. So I just concluded I was seeing things. I don't know what was going on with my mind playing tricks on me or what. Because the logistics of it just made it impossible. That's why I questioned what I saw. And I think that's how it was for... The disciples here, that's impossible. And so they're looking and thinking, is my mind playing tricks on me? Well, it wasn't until a little bit later when we were talking that we were over there cleaning up that I saw that same forklift going up the other aisle. I'm going, that sure looks familiar. And then I walked down to the end of the corridor and I saw, you know, there was a set of double racks for forklifts going up to the roof and then a concrete wall with the, the racks mounted to the wall that came off. And I walked down, and there was like a little tunnel going through the two. I'm going, I did see that guy. He had bumped one of the verticals on the rack, and that's what brought everything down. So at first, my mind played tricks on me until I could see a logical, rational, ex rational explanation. And then I know, okay, I did see it. My mind wasn't playing tricks on me. Well, we're going to see that the Lord gives those present uh, evidence to believe. They were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See, that's what was going on in their hearts. Nah, that can't be. See my hands and my feet, that is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So he come on, touch me. Because he knows they're thinking, ah, they're thinking, oh, that must just be a spirit, a ghost. Well, come and touch me. Okay. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it for joy 
and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? Have, have you anything to hear to eat? And they gave him a piece of, of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. So he's really giving them proof, positive, isn't he? Come and touch me, handle me, see me, watch me eat. Spirit doesn't do those things, right? Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which were written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came about that while he was blessing them, he parted from them. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Wow. What a story. What thoughts come to mind. He stood in their midst, alive, resurrected from the dead. They should have known better. They should have known, right? I mean, they had the word of God. They had the Old Testament. They had the word that the Lord spoke to them while he was on earth. It says in John, John, or John, 1 John 1, 1, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have held with our hands, or what our hands handled concerning the word of life. You see, I, I think John, when he wrote that, he was thinking about this time. <laughs> and all the times that he spent with the Lord Jesus Christ, handling Seeing, touching, speaking. He even leaned his head upon the breast of the Lord Jesus Christ when they reclined at table. Concerning the word of life. How would you like to have that experience with your creator? The one that created you. That's what he made us for. That kind of a relationship. A close, near, personal relationship. A friendship. God with his creatures. And John's writing about it. And he calls the Lord Jesus the word of life, the word of life. So now he was standing in their presence. And, and that speaks to me clearly and loudly about a principle that I can probably illustrate for you um, through my experiences as a diver. I was a diver in high school and in college, springboard diving, where you would uh, jump off a diving board and do somersaults and flips and all that and land in the water, hopefully um, either feet first or head first and not in between. Um, and, uh, you know, there are different dives, and there are high DD dives, they call them, and low DD dives, DD standing for degree of difficulties. When I was in high school, the highest degree of difficulty dive was a 3.0, and that's a multiplier to your scores that the judge give you to give you a final score, and you compete against other people. Now they have a lot higher degree of difficulty dives. So someone would boast that they could do a particular dive, and, of course, based on their reputation or whether you know them or what you see of them, you'd either believe them or not. But there's one irrefutable way to convince somebody that you can do one of those mid-DD dives, and that was by doing a higher DD dive. If a person said they could do a two-and-a-half somersault pike, that was not an easy dive to do off a one-meter board until you see them do a three-and-a-half. 
then you believe they can do a two and a half. When they do a back two and a half, you believe they can do a back one and a half. When they do a triple twisting one and a half, you can believe they can do a double twisting one and a half. So you see, they proved that they could do the easier by doing the harder. Well, we have the Lord Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Can you think of anything more difficult than that? I can't. And what does that do for you? And what does that do for the disciples, the apostles? I'll tell you what it does for me. It makes me want to go back through the scriptures and scurry through and collect, record, and uh, keep in a safe place all those promises that he gave throughout the New Testament, throughout the Old Testament. And some of those promises are precious to me and precious to others. I have a sister-in-law who suffers from scleroderma. She's have half her foot amputated. She's, I, I don't know anybody that's had as many maladies as she's had. Physical ailments, uh, that scleroderma is a fatal disease. That there's no cure. And I know one promise she's looking forward to, and I'm looking forward to for her, and that's a glorified body. You know, how many people here, and I know this is going to be gauged by how old you are, but how many people are here are looking forward to the glorified body? (laughs) Okay, even the young people can relate, but not as much as us that uh, (laughs) maybe are looking forward to it a little bit more. When I was young, I didn't think too much about a glorified body because I was young and strong, right? Now with the aches and pains, and it just doesn't do what I want it to do anymore, I'm looking forward to it. Now, if you've been a Christian a long time, you've also fettered not, by all, not also by the limitations of this body, but the limitations of the flesh that resides within. We all have the sinful nature. God saw fit not to separate us from the sinful nature during this time on earth. He's given us a new nature. Old things are gone. New things have come. But that old nature is still there. We don't have to obey its lusts. But oftentimes we do. So there's conflict within us. Sometimes we act out of character with the new nature, out of character what the Lord Jesus Christ called us to. And that's because we have a struggle that goes on. And he wants us to have that struggle that we might learn to have the victory, that we might submit ourselves to the Spirit of God, which he's given us. So I'm looking forward to the day where I won't have that sinful nature. And if you know me very well, you're looking forward to the day when I won't either. You might not know me in heaven because I'll be perfect there. No, I'm kidding, because the Lord will leave some, something about me that you'll recognize. When I think of Peter recognizing Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, you, have you ever wondered, well, how did he know that that was Moses and Elijah? There's something intrinsic about our identity that's going to be intact in heaven. We're going to know each other. And that's exciting. You're going to be able to see me in heaven. I'm going to be able to see you. I'm going to be able to see Bill McDonald. We're going to be able to go together before the throne of God and worship together in a way we've never experienced before. And, and, and you're going to maybe even like me then. <laughs> and I know, you, I know you guys can all relate, especially if you're married. If you're married and you live, I mean, even if you're not married, you have family life. If you're not married, you, you were raised in a family, right? So you know what it is to recognize the, we like, like to call them faults and foibles. Uh, their sins, right? We recognize the sinful tendencies in one another. And sometimes they're irritating. That won't be like that in heaven. <laughs> we have the promise of God. And when we see a look at the resurrection, I mean, a lot of promises come to my mind, and I'm thrilled and excited. And I want to go back and count those promises because God's not going to let any one of them fall 
without accomplishing all that he's promised. And the resurrection is a reminder of that. Praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord that he gave irrefutable evidence of his resurrection. No one else on earth can claim that. No other religious system, no other religious leader, nobody that anybody follows other than the Lord Jesus Christ has the hope that we have, the sure certainty, and it's all because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that was planned beforehand and was spoken of beforehand. And really the disciples, um, and, you know, I, I say this realizing that I'm just as bad as they are. They really didn't have an excuse for their doubt because the Lord Jesus Christ told them ahead of time. Now, I would, I'm not saying I'd claim to be any different in their place. I'd probably totally overlook it. And I'd be glad that the Lord would be gracious enough to drive it home by allowing me to touch him, watch him eat a fish in front of me after he had died and rose from the dead. So really, we're drawn, I'm drawn in this passage to the importance of the Word of God. For one, that's how I know about the resurrection, is from the Word of God. And I believe the Word of God before I believe any man, any woman. Thank you. Now, Unless, of course, that man or woman is citing the Word of God, explaining the Word of God accurately. Um, the Word of God first and then the, the cooperation of it in the lives of other people. You know, have you ever, you know, it says you're witnesses here. Have you ever been a witness to something before? Witness to a crime? Eyewitness to a crime? That's pretty hard to refute that, isn't it? You know, people say, well, how do we know? How do we know that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, I can't testify as a witness to the Jesus. I haven't seen Jesus return from the dead in physical bodily form, have I? So I can't really testify to that, but there were people that could at a time where it could have been corroborated. But one thing I can do is I can testify to the change in my life, in my heart, that the Bible says will happen when I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection. When he died on the cross for my sins, took my sins in his body on that cross, when God punished him in my place, and he rose from the dead, which really shows that God was satisfied with that payment. Since I believe that, my life has changed drastically, and nobody can deny that that knew, before, knew me before that. I can testify to that truth. Okay? But more than anything else, we can present the word of God, and that's God's testimony. And he's given us a, a charge, a mission if you will. We'll talk about that a little bit more. But the Word of God is so important. It's the foundation to everything that we believe. It's the foundation to truth. Truth. I try to tell people, I try to explain this to non-unsaved people. Um, I ask them, do you believe in uh, universal, objective truth? Well, what's that mean? I say universal in that there's truth that is universal to everyone. And it's not, I'm not talking about a subjective question. If I look at a painting on the wall and I say, is that beautiful? And you say, well, not to me, it's not. That's a subjective question, right? But way back before they knew that there was a ninth planet out there, this, which now they've declared not a planet. We call it Pluto, right? Before they knew it was out there, if you said, is there a ninth planet out there? Some would say, well, I don't think so. Some would say, no. Some people would say, oh, I think there is. There's a universal truth. There either is or there isn't. Isn't that true? And it's universal in that it's not going to be out there just for you and not for me. <laughs> it's true for everyone. 
And there are certain questions that have a universal objective truth. Objective means it doesn't matter how you feel about it. I don't care how you feel about the question. It's either true or it's not true. So we come to universal objective truth type questions. Did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? He either did or he didn't. Here we have proof that he did. Right? And he did for everyone. Doesn't matter how you feel about it. Doesn't matter if you don't like it. Doesn't matter if you don't believe it. He did. That's the truth. Okay? And we have the word of God to explain to us what's universally true. Object. Doesn't matter how you feel about it. As a matter of fact, it behooves you to line, up, line yourself up with the truth. When the Bible says that we deserve, all of us are sinners and fall short of the glory of God, and that because of our sins and God's holiness, we deserve punishment eternally, it's either true or it's not. So I know a lot of people that believe that's not true. But I know one person that does believe it's true, and I'll side with him every time, and that's God. And he's given it to us in his word. So the question is, do you bank on his word? Do you pick and choose just what part of his word you accept or you believe? That could be dangerous. I'll tell you why. Because in the, uh, in the beginning, it says in John 1, 1, was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh, it says in four, verse 14, and dwelt among us and we, we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ is the living word of God. And here we have the written word of God. You cannot separate the two. How you treat one is exactly how you treat the other. You cut this thing into little bits and pieces, that's, what you're, that's how you're dealing with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, while I was younger, there was a big debate about, you know, the Lordship of Christ. Does a person have to accept Jesus as Lord as well as Savior to be saved? Well, how can you dissect the Lord Jesus Christ? He's Lord and Savior. You invite him in the door. You don't say, hey, the Lord stay out. Lord, part of you stay out. Savior, come in. You can't do that. You see, how you treat the Word of God is how you treat the Lord Jesus Christ. You get up in the morning and read the Word of God. You take pleasure in that. You're getting up and meeting with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same thing. You obey the Word of God. You're obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, he goes a step farther, and we're going to read some verses. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So the way you treat the Word of God is the way you treat him. It says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Because in this verse, power from on high, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you. And will be in you. There's another promise. <laughs> the Lord Jesus Christ promises that if you have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, the moment you accept him, the moment you receive him, he grants you that the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence in your heart <laughs> forever and always. He's given you his divine nature so that when he sees you, he sees his son. He doesn't give you his denying nature. I should say he gives you the perfection of his son. See, he no longer sees you as a sinner. He sees you in the perfection of the holiness of his son. He sees the Lord Jesus Christ. But he gives you the Holy Spirit to live in your heart. That's the Spirit of God to live in your heart. And what does the Spirit of God do when he lives in your heart? 
Well, when you sin, he convicts you of it. And when you don't listen, it grieves him. To disobey the Spirit of God, to disobey the Word of God, grieves the Spirit of God. And he's saddened. And he's a person. He's not a force. So what is it to grieve the Spirit of God? To make him sad. We can quench the Spirit of God, quench his work. He could be building a fire in the work here and we can pour fire on it, or water on it, to quench it. How do we do that? By not obeying the Word of God. By not getting a step with what he's doing. It says in verse 21 in John 14, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. You know, there's a lot of people that profess to love God in a generic way. There are some people that profess to love Jesus. But you take the word of God and you hold it up to their life and say, well, what about this? Oh, well, uh, I don't quite believe that. Well, what about that? Well, you know, our church doesn't really practice those. Why not? Well, I don't know why. We just never have. Those are legitimate questions. The Word of God's important because Jesus says, if you love me, guess what? You'll love my Word. You know? And, um, you know, I'll have to hold up my wife <laughs> as an example. Some, sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm really clear on recognizing this. She likes to please me. When she makes a dish, she wants me to try it. She likes when I enjoy it. You know, I came home yesterday. She, did you see the side of the house? No. I walked over there. Wow, you did a really nice job. Cleaned it up, pulled the weeds, swept it, washed it down. I'm going, I'm impressed. Oh, that made her feel good because she wanted to please me. And that's how we should live before the Lord Jesus Christ. We should want to please him. And we please him. He tells us. He doesn't make it hard. You know, I think my wife has a legitimate complaint when she says, you know, sometimes I don't know how. What's going to make you happy? You know, and that's some of my sinful nature come out. But we don't have that problem with the Lord Jesus Christ. His word is right here. We know what pleases him. Obey my word. Obey my word. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. It doesn't just ingratiate us to the Lord Jesus Christ. God, the Father, the Holy Spirit, God the Son, they're all happy with us. And we will come to him and make our abode with him. That's God's design. He made us that we might abide with Him. And this is a perfect abiding relationship, is that we trust Him, that we know what He expects of us, and that we want to do it out of a heart that loves Him because He first loved us. It says, He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So there's another promise. His peace. His peace. If you're walking in fellowship with God, and you're pleasing Him, and you're obeying Him, you should have a peace that surpasses understanding. You should have a peace that's evident to those around you. That doesn't mean that you're not going to suffer pain. doesn't mean you're not going to get in uncomfortable circumstances. But there's going to be something about your countenance that says, you're different. <laughs> you know, deep down inside, I, I, I perceive that you have a peace about you. And that's what the Lord gives. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. 
If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. You see, that's one, I guess it's sort of like a competing struggle in my heart. When somebody that I know dies, if they know the Lord. Because you know you'll miss them, right? But at the same time, if they know the Lord, you know that they're in the perfect place. They're in fellowship with God. They're before the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're probably talking to friends like Bill McDonald. <laughs> you know? Isn't that where you want to be? That's where I want to be. But only in the Lord's good timing. And so, what a hope we have. That's a promise of God. You know? Abiding with Him. What fulfillment. What joy. And so, the Lord Jesus Christ said, you should be happy for me. Because <laughs> I'm going to the Father. But you know what? When he says he's going to the Father, um, there's another promise that kicks in for me. Does it for you? Because he said, I go to what? Prepare a place for you, for me. You know, and I think of creation took six days, right? How long has he been away preparing that place for you and me? What do you think it's going to be like? Imagination will never, ever tell. It'll be above all expectations. It'll be a perfect dwelling place. And, and, and it'll be filled with surprises. And the best thing of all, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who loves us so, will be there. The one who made us. And who will be able to take away that joy? I mean, right now, Satan, I mean, we, the, the passage is, is clear. Um, when Jesus rose from the dead, uh, that was reason for rejoicing for the disciples, right? I mean, they were marveled. They were surprised. They were sort of like in doubt, but... In the end, they're going, wow, they went, they went away rejoicing, right? But there's someone who's not happy about it, and that's Satan. Really, really unhappy about it. And the Lord said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, gates of hell, will not prevail against it. You see, he's got a plan, and he's got a purpose. And when he's got a plan and a purpose, Satan is going to seek to oppose that. Long story short, the Bible paints a picture that even though we have the promises of God, and that includes weapons of our warfare, we are at war. We are in spiritual warfare. And it's easy to forget that until something happens. But there will be casualties, and the Lord will use those even to bring glory to himself. I have told you before it comes to pass that when it comes to pass, you may believe. And this is way back in John. This is before it happened. And he's saying, after it happened, remember I told you that? Remember? I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. But that the world, and this is interesting, because you know what? The Lord Jesus Christ never asks us to do anything, one, that's too difficult, because God's command is God's enabling. And nothing that he's not willing to or has already done, not already had, not already done. It says in verse 31, but the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. See, the Lord knows what it's like to be submissive. The Father gave commandment. Jesus said, even so I do. He obeyed the Father. And was he given an easy task to do? carry our sins on his body and go to the cross and suffer in our place. I don't think, I know, he'll never, ever ask us to do anything that'll even come close to that. 
right? When he says, take my yoke upon you, because it's light and it's easy, he's taking the heavy part. He's taking the heavy part. We have a tendency sometimes to feel sorry for ourselves. I know I do. But I shouldn't because I have the easy part. So spiritual warfare, we read in Luke uh, 24, two verses here, the, we see that the Lord's given us a mission. He's left us here for a reason. It says, and that, uh, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So he's left us with a task to do, and that's reach out to others. God, I've said it before, he's in the business of populating heaven. And we have to, I have to ask myself, what part am I playing in that? What part am I playing in that? He says in verse 49, Behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He, he promises at this point the Spirit of God. We read about that in John. We at this point, you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the Spirit of God residing in you. He's the Spirit of power. Spirit of power. We're in a warfare and there's a part that you can play. The most important task you can be involved with here on earth. You have something that the unsaved don't have that they desperately need, and that's the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ said, one person said, I'll follow you. He said, but let me first bury my father. And the Lord said, let the dead bury the dead. That verse has been pointed out to me, and I remember that verse, and it comes to my remembrance often. Because there's a lot of things I can be involved with here on earth that will, in the end, not count for anything. You know? But there's one thing I can be involved in that counts for eternity, and I will never regret any amount of time I invest in that. And that's being involved in the gospel, the spread of the gospel, being a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're here this morning, you can do a job that perhaps at your workplace, perhaps at your neighbor, perhaps in your school, they can't do. Nobody there can do. A person that doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ can't do what you can do. So the question is, are you going to spend your time doing what no one else can do? Or what even the dead people can do? <laughs> Spiritually dead, that is. Where are you going to spend your time? For example, I teach at a school. And I teach working with my hands. And I have increasing number of apprentices as the economy picks up. So my question is, how many people can teach there? Any old dead person can teach there. But how many people can use that opportunity to reach those people for the gospel? I'm the only one. We have 12 instructors. I'm the only one that can share with those students the way to eternal life. No one else there. So think about where you work, where you live, people that you come in contact with. Perhaps you're the only one. You're their only hope at this time in their life to hear about what Jesus has done for them. So the question is, are you involved? I mean, it's easy to get involved with things we have to, but God's given us a choice in this. And souls are on the line. He's left us with a mission that we might be witnesses for Him. And that's what He's going to reward in the end. Are your activities in line with His mission? He promises the Spirit. It says in Acts, we see that. To these, in chapter 1, verse 3, to these he also predestined or presented himself alive 
after his suffering to, uh, by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days. So he, he stayed with them a while. And speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God, and gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. So now it's 40 days after his resurrection, or the Passover. And he says, for John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Well, that was on the day of Pentecost. That was about 10, 10 days after that. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. That's the mission he left us with. From that vantage point, we are the remotest part of the world. <laughs> We're way over here. The question is, are we involved? Are we involved? Are we involved in what he's doing and what he wants to do in the lives of the unsaved? And are we involved to the point where we're willing to risk a little bit of embarrassment? Are we willing to risk the feeling of rejection? The Lord knows all those things for his sake. After all that he's done for us, is that too much to ask? And the marvelous thing about it, and I'll close with this, these thoughts here, is in the process of us obeying the Lord Jesus Christ in this mission, He is working on us. He's doing something in our lives. You see, the Lord doesn't usually do things with just one purpose in mind. He's multifaceted in His purposes, beyond our understanding. It says in Romans 8, 29, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So that's his goal in our life. Use us to reach the lost and in the process conform us to his own dear Son, the Father, Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, um, it takes time. It takes time for him to work on us. It's a lifetime project for him. And sometimes we make it go a little slower than it should. You know, I think of the body and what we've been through lately. Um, we've seen some fruit lately. Praise the Lord. And what is written in John 15, the continuation of the passage I was re reading, was encouraging to me. John 15, 1 through 14, I'd like to read, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. Bear more fruit. God wants us to bear fruit for two reasons. One, it glorifies Him, and He wants fruit. <laughs> he wants the death of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring fruit, the fruit of satisfaction, the fruit of a love that's satisfied because He loves us. He also wants us to bear fruit because He wants us to reward us. He wants to reward us. And he knows that when we bear fruit, we realize we're, we're doing what we should do, right? And I learned something about pruning. I mean, everybody knows something about pruning. I, 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 Santa wanted me to prune the, I think it was a pluot tree in the backyard. And then I said, okay. Of course, when I was done with it, she's sort of like, ah, what'd you do to my tree, you know? <laughs> it looked like there was nothing left. <laughs> but I knew it would grow back, grow back. And I wasn't really a good farmer because I didn't know how to prune it, but I did my best. But when I learned something about pruning was with grapes at Eliani's family farm or ranch. And her dad was growing these Italian grapes. 
He had these grapevines, and those things growed about an inch and a half. They're oval. The long side would be about an inch and a half. They're monstrous grapes. They're delicious. But you see, when the vines put forth those grapes in an infant stage, they're a, they're a cluster with a lot of them, and they're real small, maybe sixteenth of an inch to three thirty seconds of an inch in diameter, and they grow all together, clustered together. And they had these little plastic tweezer-type rakes. They're about that long, if I remember them correctly, and each side had like plastic soft-fingered rakes. And it went back to a U-shape so it would stay open, and what you'd do is you'd put it over the cluster and you'd rake it like that. You'd just run it over it. And when it was done, maybe you took off 40% of those little infant grapes. And what it did was it enabled, through the pruning we'll call it, I'm sure there's a better name, it, it enabled the vine to concentrate its energy and its fluids and its growth into those that remained. And they made them big, succulent, ripe, plump Italian grapes, and they were delicious, especially in the hot sun. They were great to eat. Now, without that pruning, what would happen is you'd have small, dwarfed, bundled grapes that wouldn't be good for the same purpose. And so what I believe is, you know, that God, I believe God's word and God's promises. He prunes so that we bear more fruit. That happens in my personal life. It can happen in a church. So I hope we're encouraged by the promises of God that, that God wants fruit. He wants us to be involved. The resurrection is our motive and our power and our strength. If he accomplished his hardest promise, all the other ones, of course he can do it. And he wants to do it. And, and I pray that we see that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do praise you and bless you. Do, you do all things well, everything perfect. Lord, and we know that you're in control of our lives. You're in control of the work here. It's your work. Lord, and we know that you will accomplish your purposes through it. We do pray that um, you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, that we would dive deeper into your word to collect those promises in a jar and wait for you to fulfill those purposes, promises. We know that you will. And we pray that we might be men and women of the word, and that would be our anchor and our stay. Lord, and when confronted with the word, we'll always yield to your word, because we want to please you, and we know that's showing you that we love you. We do pray for growth in this assembly, that you might be pleased to use us to reach out to the lost as faithful witnesses, and we pray for courage to do that. And I pray for each individual member of the body here, that they might have the joy of being used by you in that sense. Wherever they are, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.